This is Anish Giri, and you are listening to the full English breakfast with Lauren Strand and Stephen Gordon. It's episode number nine of the full English breakfast. Somewhat overdue, but we're back. And I'm pleased to be joined by international master Lawrence Trent, not taking that job in Miami, and Grandmaster Stephen Gordon. How's it going? Good evening, oh, all. It's been so long. I just couldn't bear, you know, going over there and not being able to do this podcast. So. Uh, yeah, it was an April Fool's joke for the few of you who were taken in by that. Uh, Lawrence Trent does have a full-time job. It is not the full English breakfast. But I wish it was. <laughs> We've got three events to get to today. First up, the Amber Blindfold and Rapid Tournament wrapped up in March. Uh, it was the 20th and final edition, named after the eldest daughter of the Dutch billionaire Joop van Oosterum, who uh, turned 20 herself and uh, was present at the uh, at the final event, which was back in Monte Carlo in Monaco. It was very exciting, very well done, and probably the strongest field in Amber history. Nine out of the top ten players participating. It always tends to be the, the big names at the top of the table, though. I noticed that Geary struggled his first time at the event. But yeah, Aronian just does the biz again with a massive score in the blindfold. Yes, Aronian, having won in 2008 and 2009, took the first prize in the combined standings and the blindfold with a very impressive 8.5 out of 11 there. The big surprise, I would say, was how poorly uh, Kramnik did. He's, of course, won the tournament before, uh, usually very, very strong, especially in the blindfold. But uh, this year was neck and neck with Giriest until last place. Well, it's difficult to explain bad form sometimes, isn't it, Lawrence? I mean, uh, what can you say about that? Well, I mean, it's not difficult if you look at my games. It's, uh, you know, pretty much bad form all the time. What actually struck me was, I, I remember when I was uh, reading the initial uh, reports about it, there, there was a photo of them all with shades on, with these sunglasses on. I have to admit, they all looked like they turned into slightly weird chess killing machines just for a few seconds. <laughs> Magnus Carlsen actually looks like Robocop circa 1990 on there, so... Um, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? All he needs is a metal shield and metal uh, armor, and he's 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 bang on it. He'll probably be shooting up the place. That was, of course, from the drawing of lots. Uh, they had their pairing numbers uh, on the inside of those sunglasses. But Magnus Carlsen really was like RoboCop in the rapid half of the tournament, uh, finishing 9.5 out of 11, which I seem to recall was a record. In fact, I'd be surprised if it wasn't a record. 9.5 out of 11 is just an insane score. He only went down to Van Shuk. He had a draw with Aronian and then just wiped everything else out it's just a ridiculous score so he's plus five on the next person in the list Aronian got seven out of 11 just a massive score I'm not surprised it's a record well and in fact the rapid really is what enabled him to uh, finish in second place uh, because in the blindfold he was oh he's way down yeah fifth equal in the tied in with the uh, Ivan Shuk and Nakamura on five out of 11 and Nakamura was reasonably pleased with his blindfold but he couldn't get it together in the rapid. Way. Yeah, I mean, it is quite surprising because Nakamura is known for his speed chess. I mean, obviously, he's an elite player now, but just to come mid-table in the rapid must have been a little bit disappointing for him, I imagine. One of the top players in the world, rapid, and if there's a perfect tournament to show that, it's this, isn't it? Uh, but Coulson's just wiped the floor with these guys. It's pretty, it's pretty astonishing. He only needed a couple more points in the blindfold. He would have won the thing overall. So I think he'll be desperately disappointed. But uh, I think, you know, hats off again to Aronian. What, third time he's won this now? 
he's just a, he's just a complete package. This guy. He's the standings themselves didn't actually surprise me whatsoever. I mean, it's a pretty. Again, we get like top three: Aronian, Carson, Anand. I mean, you've got to say, haven't you? These these guys are just the three best players in the world, and there's a bit of a gap as well. What I love about this tournament is that it's sort of uh, it's just totally different. And what a place! I mean, in Monaco, Monte Carlo to do it. I mean, it's. Uh, it's such a shame it's come to an end. And actually, another great thing is that it's the only time where we see them blunder. Like, you know, it's just quite funny sometimes seeing them just throw away queens and, and fall into checkmate in one move. And I think they must have a laugh about it afterwards. You know, it's, so it's a bit more of a chilled out sort of tournament. Yes, very much uh, the social scene there, all the players congregating after hours to play table football and um, bug house on the last night. Definitely having a laugh at some of the blindfold blunders. I, I should note also that you can see uh, videos from each of the players uh, doing a little post-mortem of um, at least one of their games on the uh, Amber website. If you click on the, the video link there, those are, are still archived for review. And uh, there was an organized night to the uh, Monte Carlo Grand Casino. It's quite different. from If you're used to uh, casinos in the U.S., say in Las Vegas, it's, it's a completely different universe. Very high ceilings, very elegantly appointed. And uh, at least the night we were there, it was almost empty. So it was very quiet in a way. It had a much more elegant sort of old world feel to it. It had a bit of a James Bond feel, Casino Royale about it. Definitely. And Nakamura had more success at the blackjack tables than he did in the uh, in the tournament. Uh, oh, really? I think. Not bad. He's good at everything, this kid. What can you do? <laughs> but, uh... Well, as for an event of class, which we will say goodbye to, uh, we'll close with a clip from the world champion, Viswanathan Anand, from the closing ceremony of the Amber Tournament. Here he is summing up what the event has meant to him over the years. It's kind of interesting that it's only when... Uh, a tournament ends, that you understand what it meant to you. And for me, it was about this. I think there's no other tournament in the world where um, you felt so special as a chess player. This tournament was a kind of chess uh, hedonism, if you like. Um, you came here, and when you arrived at this tournament, you felt, I took up chess as a career, and it was the right decision. Okay, let's move on to the European Championship. After the Amber Tournament wrapped up, I uh, popped over to Aix-les-Bains for the last three days of that tournament. Massive field of grandmasters. Of course, the event was won, tied for first between uh, Vladimir Potkin and Wojtaszek. Wojtaszek. His name keeps popping up, doesn't it? Judith Polgar and Alexander Moisenko. Yeah. Wow. I mean, first of all, if you want to be in the top 100 in this tournament, seeded, You've got to be about 2580, 2590. I know it's uh, Edouard Romain, the um, the French player. He's um, he's 2600, and that gets you an 85th seed in this tournament. So I mean, the field is so strong. A loss anywhere in the final few rounds, it can put you out of contention for one of these places. But it's a breath of fresh air to see that Potkin comes joint first with these other big names. He was number 48. I think, uh, coming in the field, yeah. Number 48 seed. I mean, it's just awesome. It's it's a nice feeling for the onlookers to see that someone who's so low-seeded can still win the tournament. It's just absolutely wide open. And I thought he put in a, he put in a great run at the start. I think he went 5-5. Five oh, yeah. Five. Um, yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Just making a big noise at the start of the tournament, put himself in contention. 
and then he got he got a big win in one of the final rounds as well. We I just wish uh, there were more of these sorts of tournaments out there because it attracted so many top players. Because we see the elite a lot, you know, we see the Carlsons and the Kramnicks. What we don't see enough of are these other players who are sort of not, not really in the limelight, but they're still absolutely brilliant players. I mean, a lot of these guys are only, you know, 26, 20, 26, 30 guys. These guys really know how to play and they play a lot of the open circuit. So it's just nice to see them in the headlines now. It's also nice to see a couple of uh, our English boys doing well. Luke did fantastically again. We've got seven and a half. He's still making strides to, towards 2700 uh, and there were a couple of other really outstanding performances a couple of young kids did really well too so Richard Rapport did well and uh, I, there's another guy whose name I can't pronounce go on so, try and pronounce his name go on give him I'll, give him a shot alright I'm going to try but I, I, I'm really going to fail at this Sadan Shagirov from uh, Kalmykia. Yeah, Shagirov. You know, he got seven and a half. What, what's he, about 15, 16? No, no, he's older. He's like 18. He beat Carlson, didn't he, at the Olympiad? Yeah, he's he's young. What a fantastic tournament. But um, there's more things to talk about than the winners, as I'm sure we're going to move on to. But the big controversy, Macaulay, I'm sure you're going to fill us in now. Well, the event was somewhat overshadowed by the presence of Grandmaster Sebastian Feller, who uh, was found guilty of uh, sort of a conspiracy to cheat during the Olympiad in Khantimansisk by the French Federation ethics panel just weeks before the European Championship began. Of course, he had won a, uh, a board prize at the, the Olympiad for his performance there, which uh, is now called into question. But his case is on appeal. There will be an appeal of that ruling in May. Uh, and so he was allowed to play in the European Championship. Uh, but that didn't stop a lot of rumors from swirling. The interesting thing was that the sort of rumor mill uh, had it that it was still possible that some of the French players, uh, including Feller, could be involved in uh, untoward computer assistance uh, during the European Championship, which was amazing to me because you'd have to be crazy <laughs> to try to cheat <laughs> on your next event out of the gate. You'd have to be crazy or it's a bit like, you know, when you've committed a crime, the best place to hide is in the police station because they just don't expect you. Do you know, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm trying to say here? So who on earth would think that he would, after all of this controversy in the news, and no way is he going to cheat again. If there's any time to do it, it's now. Of course, I'm not condoning it, all my listeners and all you youngsters out there who are listening. Of course, I'm not saying you, you should cheat. In fact, it's a terrible thing to do. You're just saying but... this is his prime opportunity to, yeah. to get it again. Yeah. Well, putting all this aside, I mean... Let's say they've kept a, a keen eye on Feller in this tournament. There's been no way that he can cheat. The guy's played fantastic. He's got 8 out of 11. He's come fifth equal. Just looking at some of his games, he can play some fantastic stuff. He's just such a fantastic talent. And it's such a shame that this case has even arisen. I mean, okay, it, it has to arise. If the Frenchies think that he's done something wrong, it has to come up. But putting everything aside, he's shown himself to be a great player. But, I mean, this is the first I've heard of it. It's the first I've heard that he, he could have conceivably cheated again. I mean, I find that baffling. Well, for the record, I asked several of his opponents uh, in Aix-les-Bains if they had any suspicions uh, during their game or as a result of their game. They all said that, no, generally not. Some uh, pointed out, uh, for example, Dmitry Yakovenko pointed out that he was in uh, quite bad time pressure. 
which would not make sense for someone who was using computer assistance. You you know, if you were if you had to make ten moves on a minute, um, you're not going to be uh, getting any outside help there. Sure, sure. Yeah. Also, of course, he was being watched by the arbiters. There was definitely this additional scrutiny, both on the part of the uh, organizers and also, I'm sure, on the part of his other players. Nevertheless, uh, once uh, you know some rumor gets started. Uh, it can lead to a kind of an atmosphere uh, that borders on paranoia a bit. Sure. And this came to the fore uh, during the uh, the free day, just before the last four or five rounds. A group of players gathered in the room of uh, Paco Vallejo, who was set to play Feller the following day, and drafted a, a letter uh, to the organizers calling for tighter controls on electronic devices. This letter was circulated on uh, the internet via Facebook by Paco Vallejo, although uh, when I spoke with him, he made it clear that it was not so much his letter, um, but a, a joint effort, and he just happened to be the one that posted it on Facebook. Paco Vallejo, when I spoke with him about it, had some interesting points to make. Let me just play a clip with him so you can hear uh, kind of his take on it. There was, I mean, after this letter, signed maybe by 20 grandmasters or something, but just because we didn't pay much attention to it. I mean, just we wanted few few signatures, but... You could have gotten much more. I mean, we could have gotten like hundreds of signatures without any problem. Mm -hmm. Everybody was supporting... I mean, these measures about electronic control device, I mean, these devices and uh, this delay on internet or even unplugging the internet connection and this kind of stuff, I mean, if you're a chess professional, you can't be against that. If, if Feller proves that he is clean, I mean, I will apologize to him and say, okay, I was doubting on you as the other 95 or 98 percent of the people. I was, I thought you were cheating in, in hunting. But uh, this is just, I mean, what everybody thinks somehow. And uh, if he proves he's innocent, uh, I'll be really sorry for him. I mean, but uh, the real situation is that one. I mean, I, I'm not saying, and anyone is saying that he cheated for sure. I mean, you can hear it a little bit in his voice there. Um, <laughs> it's it's difficult to to try to um, remain objective given the atmosphere in which everybody is already convinced that he's guilty. The French Federation apparently has a lot of evidence, but very little of it has actually been presented publicly. Yeah, I mean, it must be it must be difficult for both sides. I mean, if you get in in the evening, see the pairings, and you see that you've got felon the next day. Half the battles getting your mind right to to just focus on the moves and play a proper game, but I mean it must have been tough for Feller as well. I mean, I'm still at a point where I think we don't know whether he's cheated or not, and I, I'd like to stay as objective as possible until something definite's been sorted. But you know what can you do? I think I think actually the way it's been handled has has been quite good. You know everyone's been allowed to play. None of the players have made any really big complaints they just said some sensible logical stuff about preventing cheating and the whole tournament ran quite smoothly the real issue yeah is of course the psychology and if you have uh, suspicions like that it doesn't really take much uh, as you said to to get inside the guy's head um, here's how uh, Paco Vallejo uh, put it uh, himself it's a huge advantage to play with that fear on your opponents. I mean, I don't doubt he's a great player, but he's playing with a huge advantage now to everyone. Because people are so scared. I mean, I wanted to play the game, but as, as soon as I had a normal position, I offered a draw and tried to get rid of this game. And, uh, well, I mean, especially he's a good player and he has this paranoia. And if, he's if he manages to focus himself on the game, he's going to have a 
huge plus. So clearly, even affecting the competitive outcome, I put this question to Feller uh, after the tournament because he had such a great performance um, and uh, wondered if he bought this theory that um, his opponents uh, would be at a disadvantage playing against him there in Aix-la-Bain. Okay, maybe not an advantage because it's uh, so difficult for for myself to play. I have a lot of pressure, but okay, it's, it's very strange uh, as a situation because for my opponents, I don't know what uh, I think it's more difficult for me, but okay. See, the pressure it's that you're It's very under. strange, the situation. <laughs> right, the pressure you're under would equalize any yes, because, fear uh, they might have. Because, for example, when I uh, would have played bad this tournament, the Federation would have said, uh, uh, look, he played bad. Uh, this is uh, the proof that he was cheating during, during Olympiads. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you feel like you were being watched more than usual? Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> Spectators and also okay, opponents, of course, yes. Some games, arbiters was following me, even uh, in toilet. <laughs> mm -hmm. Did that bother you? Did that upset you? Mm, no, no. Okay. It's not so... <laughs> was more funny. <laughs> so there you have it. Arbiters following players to the toilets. Is this what chess is becoming? Well, let's hope not because a lot of these arbiters look dodgy and I don't want any of them following me into the toilet. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I mean, is it? I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit like school exams, Steve. Do you remember when you when you wanted to do your GCSEs or A-level? If You know, there was the odd kid there who was absolutely dying for the toilet nerves or if he genuinely wanted to go. If he wanted to go... A teacher had to accompany him to the toilet. So well, I mean, that still happens with me now, you know, for university exams. If I wanted to nip yeah. to the loo, I'd be falling to the loo. Is it such a big deal to have these things in place? I mean, they've just got to keep an eye out a little bit more. I mean, if you look at this Olympiad thing, being able to talk to captains, okay, it doesn't encourage cheating, but it, it sort of makes it a lot easier to, especially if your captain's like a strong chess player. You know, the fact that they can wander around the room like they do. You know, just common sense stuff can be done in these tournament halls to really limit the potential to cheat. I feel bad for him at the moment because, as you rightly said, Stephen, he, he hasn't been proven properly guilty yet. Until that happens, you know, you can imagine people sniggering behind his back. He must feel so awful at that event, but yeah. at the same time, if he, if if he is guilty, there's nothing much we can do. All of the criticism was uh, justified. But I think returning to the original point, which is the point that Paco raised, and I know we have to be very quick with this, but maybe we can leave it for another episode, is this issue of how do we prevent cheating in the future? How do we go about making sure that the players, as Paco was so worried about, and remember, this is their lives, this is their livelihood, this is a profession, so they've got to, they've got, they, they want to feel protected, but there's the risk of protecting them in so many ways and then losing the commercial element. So Paco was talking about, you know, taking off, you know, the internet. As soon as you do that, you lose 10,000 people online and then you lose all the possibilities of corporate sponsorship and so on. So there has to be a way of somehow making sure that you keep uh, the sponsorship there whilst making sure that the, the, the players are still there. People like banning people from the playing hall might be a good start. No, nobody else apart from players has to go in there. If you want projectors, put them outside. We can do that nowadays. Well, as someone who's involved in the live broadcast of tournaments, I can definitely say that I think the, uh, the option of unplugging the, the live boards is 
really not viable. Um, but, yeah, I don't think so. But as far as the spectators goes, uh, you know, I got to tell you that they were the top 20 ports. They were playing in a big auditorium and there was almost no one there, even towards the end, you know, even when it was uh, exciting in the last rounds. Uh, aside from from basically friends and and seconds of the players and maybe a few local spectators, the place was pretty empty. Well, another big issue in the chess world coming out of the European Championships involved the tiebreak system, which again was very relevant for determining those 23 qualification spots to the World Cup. Instead of the traditional uh, playoff matches, they were using a modified form of performance rating, and it was the the way that it was being applied, the, the modification to what uh, is generally accepted as performance rating, that uh, led some players to believe that they would have qualified when, in fact, in the final standings, they did not. One of those uh, actually has filed a formal protest to the ECU, the European Chess Union, and that was the Danish Grandmaster Peter Heine Nielsen, and here was what he explained. I mean, well, we have performance is something, it's a racing you give to a specific performance, right? So let's just take this example. You have the two players with the same rating. They play against the same opponents, they make the same number of points. Then they should get the same performance rating. Right. This is, yeah, right. But the problem is, right, in all performance racing systems, right. In this performance systems, racing system, wrong. This is not performance rating. So the issue was that by dropping the highest and lowest rated opponents, um, they didn't only drop their rating for the calculation of the average rating, uh, but also the score against those opponents for the calculation of the percentage score. That's how you ended up getting some very strange consequences, such as if you had played a 1,200-rated opponent in the last round, or if you simply didn't show up and defaulted, you would be in a position to have a higher performance rating <laughs> because that score would, 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 wouldn't be available for the calculation, and therefore your performance rating would increase and your chance to qualify would increase, even if you forfeited the game in the last round, for example. It's absolutely ridiculous. And you can, you can download this uh, protest on chessvibes.com. And I was having a look through it earlier. It's tragic, really, that some of these players have lost out. I mean, a name that keeps getting mentioned is the Romanian player, Palagras. He scored seven and a half and he's just missed out. But he's been playing all the top players and he's been punished for beating Napoleacci in round three. I mean, it's just, it's just absurd, some of the stuff that's been shown up in this protest. And I hope that some of these players who've missed out, you know, they get a, they get a chance to qualify. I also wrote to Mercea Palagras to get his thoughts on it, and uh, here was his reply. He says, quote, At any major event, no tiebreak system is used without first being tested before or at least run through a simulation. I have no doubt that the people who came up with this system had good intentions, but they did not envisage the negative repercussions when it should be used in real chess. The greatest flaw of the system is cancelling the performance against the higher-rated player no matter the result. Thus, it creates an artificial and illogical discrimination between those who won against high-rated players and those who lost. In fact, a great achievement is taken away from a player who has a good performance against an opponent considered better than him or her. You cannot take the top-rated guy out of your performance because it doesn't take into account the result you had against that top-rated player. And therefore, the whole thing is just flawed. Well, this is interesting. Parlegras points out that with the criterion used, many players who almost never played at the first 20 boards qualified. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, we'll see. The ECU will have to uh, make some kind of a ruling on the protest, decide if they need to recalculate the tie breaks under a more uh, standard concept of performance rating. The jury is still out on that, as far as I know. Right. Well, I find well, it what? ridiculous that they could even implement this thing in the start. They should surely have some guys who can see straight away the flaws in the system. We all know what chess rating performance is. Why aren't we keeping it simple? So frustrating to look at this and see that these players have uh, they've been cheated out of a place, really. More importantly, what was wrong with the old system? All right, if they didn't want to do the playoffs, I don't know, maybe because you know it was an extra day there and there was expenses and they had to rent out the hall and the accommodation and everything else. <laughs> Fair enough. But just keep it to a normal performance well, rate. I mean, the thing with it is, Lawrence, like in, in maths, I guess if you, if you look at this, from a totally mathematical point of view, if you take out the top and bottom, then in general you might get a better representative mean of your average opponent. But at the same time, it's not taking into account how they scored against these players. So like yeah. some some clever clogs has come along and thought, we'll do this because in in most likely terms, it's gonna be that all these top guys beat a low rated player in round one and we get rid of him. And then all these guys play someone who's quite high up and make a similar result against them. Yeah. And we get rid of them. But if you beat your highest rated guy, straight away, if you're, one, you're, you're in penalized. such a bad position. Yeah, yeah. You're so, I mean, okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a mathematical argument to it. But it just makes no sense at all to apply it to a chess tournament. Well, I can tell you that the that the rule. Uh, I have a, an email here from uh, one of the ECU board members, Sava Stoyasavlievich, and she says that the, the tiebreak criteria was approved during the ECU General Assembly in Novi Sad in October of 2009, and that's how it became part of the tournament regulations. But they don't yet know uh, what the uh, what the procedure is. Uh, for dealing with uh, Peter Heiner's protest. Well, I'll tell you what the procedure is. Listen to what he bloody has to say. Listen to what every other grandmaster who's sickened by this. All the grandmasters, they're going, Parley Grusher goes through. Let him go. We don't want to play. He's the guy who put in the performance. He's the one who's being penalised for being Neponiachi. It's bloody nonsense. They should let him through. They should go back to the old system. It's a bunch of... You know, nobody's making these rules who are, you know, clearly just, you know, either mathematicians who've got no idea about how chess works anyway. It's infuriating. It I mean, they're, they're messing with people's lives here, you know, and careers. And this is a massive thing for these players who are ranked between, say, 26 and 2700. Their chess year revolves around this tournament. They want to qualify for a World Cup. This is the big tournament for a lot of players. And to have a tie-break system with flaws in it like this, it's just not good enough, is it? Simply not good enough. I mean, I hate to say it, but Luke McShane's been lucky to qualify, and he's probably gone through based on this flawed system. He's a fantastic player, and of course I want to see him there. And there'll be one or two other names who've gone through as well like that. But you know, Luke wasn't on the top boards until later on in the tournament, and um, there'll be one or two who've gone through just playing around 25, 2600s all the way, if their average rating's higher than some of these other guys, then that's, that's the way it goes. Well, it wasn't all fun and games in Aix-les-Bains, and I'll give the last word to Gawain Jones. Gawain! Talk to me about the circus. The circus? Okay. Uh, I wasn't expecting that question. 
The circus was really good fun, actually. Uh, I hadn't been to circus for about 15 years, but it was good. Uh, Is it lions, tigers, and bears kind of thing? Or? Yeah, well, lions, tigers, uh, camels, emus, uh, a zebra, all the stuff that we've got outlawed in England now with our animal rights. <laughs> uh, were there clowns? Yeah, there were a couple of clowns, but not as much clowning as I had remembered. I thought that the circus was basically just clowns, but most of it was acrobatic stuff and the trapeze. And it was good fun, a good way to relax after the game. Do you see any parallels between the circus and this tournament? Well, we were talking about it, actually, that uh, the circus life is similar to the chess life, where just going from tournament to tournament and the circus go from town to town, pack up, then they're off again and uh, just constantly on the move. So probably a similar style of life, yeah. So, yeah, definitely circus aspects to this. Just one thing on Gawain, he's just done his first DVD. Oh, wow! The Killer Grand Prix. And our man Gawain Jones, fantastic talent, he's throwing out a DVD there. And I'll tell you what, with this Open in this Grand Prix, he's thrown some pretty big names out of the tournament all with this. He threw Van Valley about a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Is it the Staunton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he must, he, he's put some big names away with this. And uh, for you club players out there, it's going to be a great DVD, I'm sure. So check that out at gingergm.com. I'm going to get that. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm looking forward to everybody out there who can get his DVD. Get it, because Gawain is a superb talent. He puts so much work into his openings, so he's going to have a load of really interesting new moves and new ideas on the DVD. And of course, Ginger GM, Simon Williams, who that's his website. Simon is working in collaboration with a few other guys producing his own DVD line. Probably, would you agree with me, Steve, the world's expert in the Dutch? Probably up there, isn't he? In the uh, well, Leningrad. I'd expect so, yeah. He's written quite a few books on it. And uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm a little bit fearful of his Dutch whenever I get the, uh, the pleasure of playing against him. GingerGM.com. Well, that about does it for this edition of the Full English Breakfast. We'll be back to uh, talk about the US Championship in the coming weeks. Big thanks to Anish Giri for our intro. You can see more from him at his new website, anishgiri.nl. And finally, a big congrats to the world champion Vishyanand on the birth of his son last week. Good luck to you all from all of us. Congratulations, Vishyanand. <laughs>